I want to ask you a question. Have you ever experienced a teaching moment that has been quite significant for you? I think some people, they call those moments aha moments. Like, oh, I get it now. I get what you mean. That's what I mean by a significant teaching moment. For me, one of the more significant aha moments was when I was about five years old. I was in the kitchen watching my mom cook. And there was this really bright red coil over in the on the stove, just above my reach. And I walked over to the stove. I've been told many times not to touch it, but you know, really. So I walk over to the coil. It was glowing. It was beckoning me. And I put my hand on it. Out! Oh, aha! I get it. That's why I don't touch that red glowing thing, that coil on the stove. Another significant moment. For me, it was when I moved out of home. I moved out of home and uh, lived on my own, and I decided to have this big nail, uh, and it was like a bill or something about registering, registering your car. And I thought, you know, well, I don't really have the money at the moment. I want to go to this concert, so I'll let it slip. And you know, I took the back roads because just in case the police were coming, you know, my car wouldn't register. They wouldn't notice the lack of registration on my car. Well, I got caught once. Taking the back road, the highway patrolman caught me. And you would think that that would be my aha moment, right? No. The next day, same highway patrolman pulled me over, and I got hooked again. It was an aha moment that was of financial significance. But the most significant learning moment was when I was given a little red, a little orange book called the Cross Centered Life. Keeping the main thing the main thing. C.J. writes about how to overcome our tendency to move on from the gospel of grace. And he so rightfully helped me and many other readers find the incredible joy of the gospel. About the gospel. And whose promises allow us to escape condemnation. To help us avoid the prevalent trap of legalism. And I love how CJ demonstrates the difference between knowing the gospel and making it the main thing in daily decisions and in daily living. Keeping the gospel the main thing was a wonderful moment where my eyes were opened and I had an aha moment given to me by the Holy Spirit. Friends, this morning with these four verses, would the Holy Spirit give us an aha moment about what is significant to our Savior? Would you please turn with me in your Bibles to Mark chapter 10, and we're going to be looking at verses 13, 14, 15, and 16. And they were bringing children to him that he might touch them. And the disciples rebuked them. But when Jesus saw it, he was indignant. And he said to them, Let the little children come to me. Do not hinder them, for to such belongs the kingdom of God. Truly I say to you, whoever does not receive the kingdom of God like a child shall not enter in. And he took them in his arms, and he blessed them, laying his hands on them. Would you pray with me? Our Savior, 
Redeemer and King. How we thank you for your word. Holy Spirit, we invite you this morning to give us eyes to see what is important to you, our Savior and our King. In Jesus' wonderful name I pray. Amen. Church, it was two months ago, on June the 19th, that we looked at Mark chapter 8, verses 27 to 30. It's in Mark chapter 8, verses 27 through 30, that we notice a shift in the Gospel of Mark. It's when Jesus turns to Peter and says, Who do you say that I am? The, the letter right now in Mark chapter 8 is shifting and changing. Dave so correctly helped us understand that that question not only is for the disciples, but it is for you and I. Who do we say that he is? We need to be able to answer that most important question. And as we moved on from Mark chapter 8, then we looked at the way to the cross, followed by going up onto the mountain where this incredible transfiguration took place, a vision of glory and a vision of suffering. And then we headed down the mountain where we saw feeble faith being reformed. And as we continue to make our way through this section of the gospel, we've learned about what true greatness really is. You see, Jesus is discipling the disciples. He then goes on to help us see and help the disciples see that they actually have a misplaced zeal. And then Brendan so wonderfully helped us understand the sobering warning that Jesus gives us here in Mark's Gospel. And then in chapter 10, where we last were looking at the Gospel of Mark, they highlighted for us about how divorce and marriage is important and significant, and we learned from that. That question that was answered, that question that was asked, and the answer that was given. And so for the placement of where we were at right now, we're still back in chapter 10, and in verse 10. In chapter 10, verse 10, it actually says that, and in the house the disciples asked him about this matter. We're still sort of in this place that the disciples are asking Jesus about the marriage and divorce. But now, the conversation is going to change. In our verses this morning, I want to highlight three lessons that we can learn, or that are to be learned. The first lesson that we're going to look at this morning is a lesson about children, followed by a lesson about salvation, followed by a lesson about our Savior. So a lesson about children. This morning before us, we have this short episode which continues this theme of the nature and the cost of discipleship that we began to look at back in chapter 8, verses 27 to 30. And we remember that Jesus has already taught earlier about the humility and about the sacrifice that is required for discipleship. Jesus has even used an illustration in chapter 9, verses 36 to 37, about the children. And now here in chapter 10, he returns to using children. But he's now more clearly elevating the view of children. 
To be honest, friends, this discussion follows quite well from the discussion of marriage and divorce that we looked at previously. But picture with me for a moment the room, the home, parents, children gathered around the Savior. And some of the parents, whether they're just walking over to Jesus and showing him their baby, but what they want is they want for Jesus to touch their baby. This would have been, the passage doesn't tell us, um, Mark doesn't tell us, Peter doesn't tell Mark about who it actually is. It could have been moms and dads, it could have been grandparents, it could have been siblings grabbing their little brothers and sisters' hands and taking them over to Jesus to have him touch them. In, in, in Luke's account, he actually remembers that people were bringing babies and infants to the Savior and putting them in his arms. Now, this is a classic Jewish tradition. This is something that used to happen. It's a custom. In fact, we can read about it all the way back in Genesis, where Jacob actually lays hands on Ephraim and Manasseh. It's quite proper. It's quite traditional. And to be honest, it's quite special and quite a joyous moment. But wait, the disciples are stopping these children coming to Jesus. They're actually hindering the parents of the little kids and pushing them away. They're actually sending them away. They're actually rebuking people and sending them away. The disciples are stopping something that people might think, well, what's the big deal about that? Why are the disciples stopping these parents or these kids from going to Jesus? Is it because they're trying to, to protect Jesus? I mean, as we've learned and as we look through Mark's gospel, I mean, when Jesus is around, there seems to be some sort of conflict. There seems to be some sort of a discussion that begins to take place. They don't want another fight to happen. They don't want another event. You know, I mean, we think about the Eastern Asian culture. I mean, something's happening. They don't just keep it to themselves. They go tell other people. I mean, they could be saying, hey, Jesus is touching kids. Get your kid in there. Get your kid in there. The rabbi is paying attention to the kids. But the disciples have stopped the children. Maybe it's because they're just children. They're not that important. They have nothing to offer society yet. Perhaps is what they're thinking. You see, Brendan and David have both mentioned that women and children were often the victims of exploitation and abuse in the ancient world. And what we readers of this passage of 2016, what we may not understand is this. Children do not hold or did not hold the position that children our day and age held for an example, a papyrus letter was written by a, man, uh, by a man by the name of Hilarion. And he wrote this letter to his expectant wife. It's dated the 17th of June, 1 BC. And it, and it instructed her, excuse me, that if it's a male child, let it live. If it's a female, cast it out. In Roman law, they gave the fathers absolute power and authority over the family. That extended to life and death. 
And as late as 60 AD, a son was put to death by the simple order of his father. You know what's incredible to me? What I love about this is that in this yuck and in this mire and in this disgust, we can go, that's horrible. But don't miss it. Our Savior entered the world at such a time as that. Do you remember he was born? And King Herod, what did he do? He executed a murder on all babies, two and under, boys. Children were not presumed to be blessings in the non-Christian culture of Christ today. So we, you and I, have a challenge in many ways to fully understanding just how significant a lesson this is. So we could miss the significance of this passage very easily. You know, in fact, I was actually looking at what secular views we have of children today. And in Australia, these are the Australian rights of every single child in Australia. Children and young people have some very important human rights to help them be healthy, to get help life. They have the right to be alive. They have the right to not be hurt or mistreated. They have the right to special education and care if they have a disability. They have a right to good health care, safe drinking water, healthy food, a clean and safe environment, and information to help you stay well. They have a right to be looked after, a right to food, clothing, and a safe place to live. They have a right to protection from harmful drugs. They have a right not to be punished in a cruel way. They have a right to help if, you, if they have been hurt or badly treated. They have a right to be respected and listened to. This is how we, in our country, demand or hope for our children to be treated. This is not the situation for these children that are being brought to Jesus here in Mark's Gospel letter. Interestingly, though, back in the Hebrew culture, they saw children as a gift from the Lord. You'll remember Rachel. Jacob's second wife, back in Genesis 31, she prayed for children. Hannah went to the temple and prayed for children. You see, Hebrew culture, the people of God, the people that God had set apart, they had an elevated view of the family and their children. But here in Mark chapter 10, Jesus is further elevating children. If you look with me at verse 14, we learn that Jesus sees what's going on, and he is indignant. Do you know that word is it's only used this time in all of the Bible? And it actually has a combination of two words, and it means much, and it means to grieve. Jesus is much grieved about what is happening. Why? Why is Jesus much grieved about the disciples sending the children away. You know, it's quite sobering to ponder here. But the things that grieve us reveal a lot about us, don't they? What grieves you? What makes you indignant? Notice the Savior referring. What he says 
And what he does and what he tells us speaks volumes about who he is. Oh, look and see what is important to him. Hear it. What matters to him is the seemingly insignificance of society. His eyes are on the children. Those boys and girls that are gathered around the room. And every boy and girl, yellow, black, red and yellow, black and white, they are precious in his sight. You cannot read verse 14 and not see that Jesus loves children. You can't see that Jesus loves children. But we also learn from Jesus' indignation something else. He affirms children's ability to respond to the gospel. Look with me at verse 14 again. But when Jesus saw it, he was indignant and said to them, Let the children come to me. Four words. Do not hinder them, for to such belongs the kingdom of God. Now we see why in verse 15 that the kingdom of God belongs to them. But if there were ever a verse to confirm children being evangelized, this is it. Children can authentically come to Christ early on in life and have an amazing walk with Christ and bear much fruit and bring much glory to God. I want you to read, listen to this testimony of a man by the name of William Hunter. William Hunter had been trained to the doctrines of the Reformation from his earliest youth. Being descended from religious parents who carefully instructed him in the principles of true religion, Hunter, when he was 19 years of age, refusing to receive communion at Mass, was threatened to be brought before the bishop, to whom this valiant young martyr was conducted by a constable. Bonner caused William to be brought into a chamber where he began to reason with him, promising him security and pardon as he would recount the name of Christ. Nay, he would not, he would have been content if he would have gone only to receive and to confession, but William would not do so for all the world. Upon this, the bishop commanded his men to put William in the stocks in his gatehouse, and where he sat two days and nights with a crust of brown bread and a cup of water only, which he did not touch. At the two days in, the bishop came to him, finding him steadfast in the faith, sent him to the convict prison, and commanded the keeper to lay irons upon him as many as he could bear. He continued in prison three quarters of a year, during which time he had been before the bishop five times. Besides the time when he was condemned in the consistory in St. Paul's every night, at which time his brother Robert Hunter was present, then the bishop, calling William, asked him if he would recant, and finding he was unchangeable, pronounced sentence upon him that he should go from that place to Newgate for a time, and thence in Brentwood there be burned. About a month afterward, William was sent down to Brentwood, where he was to be executed, on coming to the stake, he knelt down and read the 51st Psalm until he came to these words. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and a contrite heart, O God, thou wilt not despise. Steadfast in refusing the Queen's pardon, and if he would become an apostate at length, one Richard Pond of Baylor came and made the chain fast about him. 
William cast his soldier in his brother's hand, who said, William, think on the holy passion of Christ, and be not afraid of death. Behold, answered William, I am not afraid. Then he lifted up his hands to heaven and said, Lord, 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 receive my spirit. And casting down the head again into the smoldering smoke, he yielded up his life to the truth, sealing it with his blood to the praise of God. That, my friends, is a man who understood that his life was not his own. Hear what Charles Spurgeon says. He says, I will say broadly that I have more confidence in the spiritual life of the children that I have received into this church than I have in the spiritual condition of the adults thus received. I will go even further than that, he says, and say that I have usually found a clearer knowledge of the gospel and a warmer love to Christ in the child converts than in the man converts. I will even astonish you still more by saying that I have sometimes met with a deeper spiritual experience in children of 10 and 12 than I have in certain persons of 50 and 60. Children are not to be hindered from coming to the kingdom of God. You know, one Gallup survey reports in the U.S. that 19 out of 20 people who become Christians did so before the age of 25. At the age of 25, 1 in 10,000 people will become believers. At the age of 35, 1 in 50,000. At the age of 45, 1 in 200,000. At the age of 55, 1 in 300,000. At the age of 75, 1 in 700,000 people. What does this mean for us? What does this mean for Sunday school teachers? What does this mean for youth workers? What does this mean for church members? What does this mean for moms and dads, aunts and uncles, grandparents? No, you can't save a child. However, you can cultivate a spiritual awareness and sensitivity in children. You can pray fervently and in detail for children. You can grow in faith for your child's salvation. The point, the lesson about children is we are not to hinder them, Jesus says. He loves children and he knows that they can respond to the gospel. So let them come and do not hinder them. The second lesson that we can learn from these four verses is a lesson about salvation. Dear friends, Faith and dependence is necessary to enter the kingdom of God. We've seen this theme back at the beginning of Mark's gospel in Mark chapter 1. Jesus comes announcing, repent and believe in the good news. But what does that mean, right? What does it mean to repent? Repentance means recognizing one's unworthiness. It means acknowledging sin and turning from it. Repentance. What does it mean to believe? Believing the good news means trusting in God's provision for salvation. Not my ability to obey or to follow Christ. It means God's provision for salvation. Remember at the home of Levi, Jesus told the religious leaders that he, he didn't come to call the righteous. He came to call sinners. And what Jesus is saying is, I come for those 
who are ready to acknowledge their sinfulness and to express their need in a great decision. You know, I journeyed this last year a couple times over to Paramedic to have coffee with the body of mine. I get up very early in the morning to beat the rush hour traffic. And I drive over to the Westfield Shopping Center and I park my car. And I usually get there about a half hour before I'm supposed to meet with the spring. And I make my way from the car park at Westfield across this road and under this bridge. And then you get to the center square. And it's a quiet place. I'm just doing something very paramedic. It's very exciting. But along my journey from the car park at Westfield over to the city square, I pass several repetitively homeless people. And I see them laying down on the sidewalk. And what I usually notice is I notice their feet. The feet are putrid. They're dirty. Their toenails are disgusting. The cracks in their feet are deep. Losing sometimes. Some of them may have bags of a few items, possessions. Just walk past them. I think God. I'm not I can judge them. Think what did you do to get here? What do they have to offer anyone? They're filthy. They smell. They can never get a job. Do they have? They have nothing. As I read these verses here, I'm reminded that I am a sinner's This passage reminds me in reality that I am in as much need of help as these folks are. Friends, hear the words in verse 15. Jesus says, Truly I say to you, whoever does not receive the kingdom of God like a child shall not enter it. Listen to this quote from William Henry. He says, The solemn pronouncement is directed to the disciples, but as, has pertinence for all men confronted by the gospel because it speaks of the condition for entrance into the kingdom of God. You see, friends, hear this. No one will get into the kingdom of God unless they receive God's salvation like a child. No one will inherit the kingdom of God unless they see their hopeless and helpless states. Now, Jesus is not meaning you need to come like the innocent child that just believes in Santa Claus or the tooth fairy or Bugs Bunny, if anybody believes, or the fear rabbit, the bunny. <laughs> but Jesus is meaning you need to come like an innocent child, but Jesus isn't saying you have to have that childlike, wondrous state of simplicity 
and of wonder, those things are wonderful, and they're good, but that's not what Jesus has in mind here. Jesus is speaking of a more objective state. Every child that has walked the earth, regardless of race, regardless of culture, regardless of experience or background, what is it that Jesus is wanting us to understand? We must come to him helpless. We must come to him completely and utterly dependent. Every child in the world is absolutely totally, objectively, subjectively helpless. Think about when you grab your baby. What can they do for themselves? They can't wipe their bum. They can get the snot off their nose. They can't eat to live. They are completely and utterly dependent. Oh, they might give you a smile and you might think that's cute. But they are completely dependent on you. Children of God. It is so So too is every child that is born into the kingdom of God. Children of the kingdom of God enter into it helpless. They are the ones that whom, to whom everything must be done. Nothing in my hands I bring. Simply to thy cross I cling. Naked, come to me for dress. Helpless, oh, helpless, we look to him for grace. And the lesson, dear church, to be learned is that we come to God empty and hopeless. We don't come to him because we're not a liar, because we've stolen anything, because you're not a bad person. <laughs> we please forgive me. We come to him empty. We come to him hopeless. Not with our wealth, not with our bank account, not with our success, in our marriage or in our parenting or in our faithfulness at work good worker, we don't come to him with that. We have no power. We have no position through which to succeed. I am, I tell you this unashamedly but emotionally, I am in complete need of God's grace. And you know what, my friend, if you walk in that realization, how can you walk arrogantly it brings you humbly before a gracious and great God. Can I ask you, have you come to Christ like this? Is it his grace plus your nothingness? It's all in. Salvation was made available all by him. We know, friends, that the world refuses to come to Christ because we so desperately want self-respect. Ephesians 2.8, by, by grace even, 
through faith and not of ourselves. It is the gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. Friends, before I received this little orange book, I would have been raised on the front row pew of the little Southern Baptist Church at Riverbank, California. Answers. I knew that Jesus was the way. But what I didn't understand was that he loved me and cared for me. And so when I would leave church, I would act like the rest of the world. I would try to pretend and do the right things. But it wasn't until I did understood. After I got myself in a whole lot of trouble, then I had feet that were dirty and black with massive cracks in them. Then I stunk, my skin stunk and was gray. I had matted hair. And Jesus is saying, Come to me, Patrick. What? I stink. Let me just get fixed up. Let me have a shower first. Let me get cleaned up. He's saying, come, come, I've done it for you. No, 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 let me just, let me try to pray harder. No, 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 let me, let me do a bit more devotions. No, 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 let me get to church a bit more. Let me present something to you. Nothing in my hands, dear friend, I believe. People who need to understand the gospel, it's not about not hurt anybody, not kill anybody, not being a good person. You know, that's not. Come in. Help us. No merit on my own. See, what I bring to Jesus, let me tell you what I bring to Jesus. I bring in my sin, I bring in my guilt. I must accept that I cannot earn the Savior's love. And that is so scandalous to me. I freely receive his mercies because he loves me. And that is ludicrous. I love what Tim Keller says. The gospel is this. We are more sinful and flawed in ourselves than we ever dared believe. Yet at the same time, we are more loved and accepted in Jesus than we ever dared hope. Friends, this is the lesson about salvation. This is what Christ wants the disciples to understand, I think. That, yes, he died for our sins. It is for the hopeless and the helpless, but the receiving of this scandalous, lavish, beautiful gospel is what is specifically in view. How have you received this glorious gift of salvation. Have you received it? Recognizing that he has, as Bridget said, everything he has given us, everything we need. Let me share with you the last lesson. So lesson one about children is that they are helpless. Lesson two about salvation is how we receive it. 
Lesson three is a lesson about our Savior. George McDonald, he is a Scottish minister who is a skinny image of Simon Wood. He's a rocket beard. He is a stubby dude. He is a Scottish minister. <laughs> and he reminded me of you, brother. I saw his picture on Wikipedia. I was like, yeah, that's but here's the thing, and you know, this, this, um, this George McDonald, he was a great influence to C.S. Lewis and formed and shaped him in many ways, and we thank God for the work C.S. Lewis has done. But this man once said that he doubted a man's Christianity if children were never found playing across, around his door. That's a very strong statement. I think Scottish men are a bit like that. But, but you know, that was, wow, that's, that's huge. He doubted a man's Christianity if children were never found playing by the Christ war. But here's what he think he's meaning. And that is, since Jesus was a lover of children, and since Jesus' spirit dwells in us, we are very near the heart of Christ when we love children. Wouldn't you agree? Look at verse 16. And he looked, he took them in his arms, and he blessed them, laying his hands on them. Remember that room? Remember those children? What happens to them waiting and watching what's unfolding? Jesus was indignant. I don't think he saw on his face or got cross. I don't know how he looked when he became indignant. But the disciples have stopped them coming in. Jesus interjects. Uh, We'll just wait here awkwardly while they get this sorted out. But notice what happens to these baby children. He takes them in his arms and he blesses them and he's laying his hands on them. What is the Savior doing? What is he teaching in this moment? What is the lesson? And here's the lesson I think, my friends. No one. No one is unimportant in the kingdom of God. No one is unimportant in God's eyes. That's an incredible message right there. That is incredible. No one is unimportant. The disciples are saying, no, 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 the kids are significant. And Jesus is elevating them. Listen. Look what Jonah does. He actually even does more than what they're asking for and what they're hoping for. If you look at verse 13, it says, And they were bringing children to him that he might touch them. But look what Jesus does. He does so much more. He picks them up. He holds them in his arms. Isn't that just like our Savior, though? He's so great. He's so wonderful. And he's so generous. I imagine that that these children were very comfortable around Jesus. But we've had seven children. And I've watched my seven children go into various um, situations where there could be large crowds of people. And you know what? I watch my kids. They seem to know who it's okay to go to. One of the most touching moments as a dad is when I see my little girl go over to Dave and just talk to Dave. I just think that, that that's awesome. I want my little kids to go to Dave. I it, it means something when our little kids say, 
children could tell that Jesus loved them. I picture them laying their heads back on his chest and Jesus blessed them. And we can learn a lot here. And I think the Savior wants us to learn a lot from this. The Savior is serious. Friends, don't miss this. I think the Savior is serious about understanding that to welcome a child means to welcome him. And to welcome him is to welcome God who sent him. By rejecting children, the disciples, we are in fact rejecting and failing to comprehend the nature and the power of the gospel. Oh, let us pay attention, friends. And Jesus is going to continue to instruct these guys that if they want to be first in the kingdom of God, they must be last. And they must become servants of all. How grateful that we can get to learn from these men. I mean, one of the things I really appreciate about what Mark Frayer said to us was about meditating on Scripture. And as I meditated on this passage of Scripture, I thought, how kind of Peter to relate to Mark about what to write. And as you read through this, you think, Peter, you just, man, you're a dropkick. Like, you don't really get it. And yet, how kind that we get to learn from here. And, and, and uh, it's just incredible. But they continue, these disciples continue to point out that Jesus himself is the one. And he is the Son of Man who came to be served, who did come to, he came to serve and not to be served. And he came to give his life as a ransom for many. Do you see the lesson of the Savior? The lesson is this. The disciples didn't understand his purposes. It's very clear. They're beginning to get insight, but they're not understanding it. Nor are they understanding the whole nature of the kingdom of God. And this is what it is. In the kingdom of God, my brothers and sisters, there is no one who is unimportant to God. That means slave, free, Jew, Gentile, rich, poor, man, woman, child. No one is unimportant to Jesus, to the kingdom, to God. This morning in these four verses, and these uh, the three lessons are a lesson about children. Jesus loves them, and they are not to be hindered. A lesson about salvation. It's for the hopeless and it's for the helpless. We bring nothing. We are to accept it. Helpless like a baby. And finally, a lesson about the Savior. No one is unimportant in the kingdom of God. Can I ask you this morning, friends, why the kindness of the Holy Spirit? Have you had a aha moment? For me, while I was preparing this message, I had two aha moments. And the first one comes in verse 15. Would you look at verse 15 with me again? It says, Truly I say to you, whoever does not receive the kingdom of God like a child 
shall not enter into. Friend, if you are here today and you have not entered the kingdom of God, if you have not accepted Jesus as Lord and Savior, please take heed. If you don't, you shall not enter it. You know, one of the things that I remember as a young kid was that, you know, in these times of talking about heaven and hell, we went hard on hell. And we wanted to scare the hell out of people. We wanted people to turn, not burn. I had a t-shirt when I was in year four that said, it had Yosemite Sam on it, and said, heaven or hell, turn or burn. I, I wasn't allowed to wear that to school anymore. But, um, yeah, like, the idea is that we want to scare the people, people out of hell. Can I tell you something? I want to tell you that the way to help people see the beauty of this kingdom of God is to tell them what Jesus has done for you. Tell them how he has met you where you are at and delivered you and given you hope, everlasting hope. Friends, we this put on us, not just the children, but with our neighbors and with our families and our friends. Some My second aha moment came in verse 16. And he took them in his arms and he blessed them, laying his hands on them. I remember how I asked him the question, why was Jesus indignant? I never answered that if you noticed. But I think the reason, and as I've meditated on this, and as I've Put into practice with Mark prayers and I believe helped us with the way that can. As I thought about this, this is just Patrick's view from the chief seats. And that is, I think Jesus was indignant with the disciples because they were misrepresenting They were actually misrepresenting how God feels. And instead of shutting up and not saying anything, Jesus became indignant, and he rebuked the disciples, and he said, Let them come with me. But he didn't leave them there. He blessed them. That is our Savior. That is what he does. Jesus does so much more than we expect. And if you're here this morning, and you are a follower of Jesus, and you have been living for him, Friends, I want to encourage you, wake up every morning with arms open to receive from our Heavenly Father. You have no idea how much He loves us. Friends, nothing in our hands is greater. Simply to the cross. every day. Don't grow tired. Don't grow tired of your helplessness. It's all about him. Naked, come to thee for dress. Hopeless, look to him for grace. Let me pray for us. Heavenly Father, your word says that you are worthy. You are worthy to receive glory. 
You are worthy to receive honor, and you are worthy to receive power, for you created all things. What that means, Lord, is that every single individual, you created. And it is by your will that they have their being and that they exist. Heavenly Father, would it be? Would it be that our gaze and our understanding of you is that we would be helpless? Oh, that we would see what an incredible Savior you are. Oh, Father, thank you for this.